You know, our modern conveniences have allowed us to contact almost anyone in the world by phone. And for most of us, you know, you may even have a device that allow you to like do video conferencing. And if you decided that you wanted to write something uh, to someone, you could email them or send a message in a variety of formats. And it would literally go out like immediately to them. That is just a shocking reality that we have. And what's crazy about that is that you can do that with a phone. Like most average phones, you could just pull it out of your pocket. You could contact anyone in the world. If you decided, I really want to see them in person, you could catch a flight. And within a day or two, depending on how far it was and all the layovers, you would be in their presence. It's just something that no one... Uh, in history would ever even think about or comprehend us being able to do that. Some time ago, Mike Smith sent me an article that was lamenting the fact that it would be difficult uh, to write a biography on a person in this age. In the past, when researching for a biography, the writer would would read all the written correspondence of that person. Like some people... Uh, like a George Washington, there's volumes and volumes of written correspondence. You could read through all of that stuff and get an idea about the person and what they were like and what their thoughts were and what they believed about certain things. In our day, to write a formal letter uh, is something we rarely do. And if we did, no one would read it. Like that's kind of how it's kind of gotten to that place or that level. And so I think it's interesting when I think about that and consider that when when we're reading Paul and you read this letter, if you were to sit down and try to read through it in one sitting, I mean, you would probably fight to keep focused and to think and to, you know, and it's just more and more difficult for us sometimes to to think through a whole uh, a whole letter like this uh, that God used him to write. And so uh, it, it's been a joy to go through it step by step by step. And I hope for you, uh, you will be able to move through it um, as you look at it for the rest of your life in a better way and more clear way. And so we're going to look this morning and try to just say, if we were to read this one time and try to make sense of it uh, and try to understand how all the different parts fit together to make up the whole and what Paul is doing, uh, that's what we'll do. And so we're going to move kind of quick. If you are uh, visiting for the first time, you might be like, good night. Do y'all usually go through the whole book, a whole book in one setting? We don't, but we're going to do that today because we're finishing up our study in Romans. So I want you to go to Romans 1, and we are going to go to a lot of different passages kind of going through uh, the letter as it was written. And Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, a lot of people see as the summary of the letter. And it starts in this way, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is articulating here why the good news uh, is, is good news, or why the gospel is the gospel. Uh, he is laying that out for us in a very powerful way, and he's saying it is about God's power to save us. Uh, he tells us that it is open to everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. 
It's a way of saying it is open to the whole world. And he also says to us uh, that it's going to be given to the whole world. It's kind of the way you would kind of lay that out and see that. It is important to see the gospel here as a gift to be received. Uh, That's another very powerful thing for us to understand. It is to be received by faith. It is not earned, but it is received. It, It is a gift. It's in a package. You open it up, it's yours. Not because you worked for it, made the money, and went and bought it. You don't buy salvation. It is given to us. And so we see that. Now, another thing that we see about the gospel here is it is the righteousness of God. It is not the righteousness of man. It is not somehow that we are making ourselves right in order to be right with God. It's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches is God made us right with him. And he made that possible For us to be right with Him. We enter into right standing with God. Through the second person of the Trinity. The Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we gain that. So this righteousness is alien to us. It's outside of us. It has come to us in the person of His Son. Who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And rescued us. That's the gospel. That's why it's good news. Otherwise, it's not good news. Good news is there's a gift that's been given, offered to us freely. Now turn to Romans 8, 29 and 30. This is another passage to me that really helps you understand Romans in a kind of a broad stroke. 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Just as a side note, verse 29 is very closely tied to... It's not that it's not anywhere else, but there's a very close tie to the the structure of the book. Maybe in chapters 9 through 11, we talk about all that language of chosen and called and that that kind of idea there and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified so as you're looking at the book and you're thinking about some of those things the whole concept of justification is is built in an argument through the first five chapters some would say really through the first eight chapters of the book And so he talks about that in the book and lays that out for us, what that is. And those whom he's justified, he's also glorified. And glorified has the idea not only of, uh, I think it has this ultimate end in mind. uh, And and maybe you could say in between as as God is perfecting us or transforming us. But but really what he does is in Romans is he helps us understand, see, understand how our union or our relationship with Christ uh, is tied to our past, eternity past, present, and eternity future. So this gospel is good news because it really says 
in eternity past, God chose us. In the present, He calls us. We're set up right with Him through faith, justified. And ultimately, it will lead to our uh, future with Christ. There's great security in that, hope in that. And I think those two passages, in a very powerful way, summarize what he's doing in Romans. Now, I want you to go back to Romans 1, verse 18. And we say, okay, this whole righteousness thing, why do I need righteousness? Why do I need to be made right with God? Why? why? I mean, am I not right with God? Doesn't God think I'm awesome and He loves me and I'm so great? Like, how could I need to be made right with God? Why can't I make myself right with God? Somebody said that. Why can't I do that? I want to make myself right with God. I want to say with myself, I want to say, I can be a good enough person that God would love me, embrace me, and bring me into His family and be happy to do so. And Romans says, no, 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 no. Hold on just a second. You are not seeing things clearly. Let me explain this to you. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is the truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has God shown this to them? For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that He has made so that they are without excuse. Why do people need right standing with God? Why does it have to be a gift given? Why is it that I have to receive God's charity? Because, as we see, and and we're going to start here with the kind of the irreligious world, those who do not have the promises of God, the truths of God, because the knowledge that they have, what people would call general revelation, that is creation knowledge, that is, I can walk outside and with my senses, I can look out there and see that there's a creator. That knowledge they suppress. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The natural man looks at creation and sometimes he makes little images out of that creation and worships it. Or he says, I worship God my way. And the way I do that is by bowing down to uh, his lakes that he made, and his mountains that he made, and uh, the people that he made. And I worship all those, and I give thanks to them, but not thanks to God. And when I do that, you understand that God's wrath is falling on me because He is Creator, He is Lord of His creation, and if you look at that and you say, well, I don't really care, I'm not going to give thanks to Him, I'm not going to worship Him, He doesn't mean anything to me. Or I don't even believe He exists. I know I'm breathing air. I know that there are mountains that I didn't make. I know that there are seas that I didn't fill the water up. I know that I don't even understand how that stuff works. But I'm not going to give thanks to Him. And I will continue in my downward spiral. 
And it will manifest itself in the most grotesque ways so that Romans 1 shows how man, apart from God, in a state of rejection, lives. You might say, "Mm, mm, mm, I can't stand the world. But then in chapter 2 he says, hold on just a second. You religious people who have the law of God, who have more than the general, general revelation of God, you have special revelation. You have His Word. You know what He says about Himself. You know what is right and wrong. You know it. You. You practice the same things. Hey, religious man, look in the mirror. How are you doing with the law of God? Unless you have perverted it and twisted it and made it something that it is not, you are condemned by it. You have no hope. Your righteousness, as the Scripture says, is as filthy rags. Turn to Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Who holds their head up high? Some of you came in here today with your head held high. You think you're great. You look at your life and you say, look at what I've done. And I would say to you, if you spent time in front of the gospel then you would not come in here saying, I'm the greatest person on the planet. Because guess what? You will die. (laughs) And evidence will be shown to all of us that you were not without sin. Now, how is it that God is going to be able to save sinful humanity rather than condemn them? You might say, well, he'll give them a system of how to be righteous enough to reach him. No, it would never work. If you were to look at the children of Israel, you would say, hmm, even though that's not the whole goal of what he gave them, they thought that that's what he gave them. And so when he gave them the law, they worked vigorously to be good enough. And guess what? In a way, you could say they were working at it. In another way, when you looked at their lives, you thought, good night, these people have all these benefits and they're still really messing it up and they end up under God's judgment. So how's he going to do it? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Just saying that the Old Testament preached about it It's been manifested apart from law-keeping. How is it manifested? It is manifested, this righteousness of God. What is this? It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So someone becomes right. Someone is declared in good standing in the court. Someone is legally, not just not guilty, but in good standing with the king of the universe, with the judge of the universe. He is declared right. How does he do that? How does he enter into that? How does he experience that? How does he get that gift? He receives it by faith. 
For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his. Look at that grace as a what? Gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redeeming work of Christ. Through the saving work of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received, how? By faith. What is propitiation? God's wrath was satisfied by His Son being offered there on the cross for the sins of all who will believe. It is a gift that is received, that we are hoping in and trusting in. Keep moving. Well, let's look one other thing here. And I don't have time to like unpack all of this, but in verse 26, what you see is, or really verse the end of 25 and 26 is, this is how it's been from the beginning. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament people in faith, trusting in what God had promised He would do, saved. New Testament people in faith, looking back at the cross, trusting in the promise of God. Both. He is both the just and justifier. What that means is that God is faithful to condemn sin. God is faithful to His character to condemn sin. And at the same time, He is faithful to His mercy to save sinners. So He is both just and justifier. Now, You might say, I'm not sure about that. And I would say to you, or you might even say, I don't think the Old Testament taught that. And what does he say? The Old Testament did teach that. You go to chapter 4 and you see that both David and Abraham trusted in the promise of God. Their righteousness was credited to to them by faith. That's his argument. Chapter 5, he says, therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, turn there, just keep moving with me, don't go to sleep. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, we are justified by faith and have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are brought in. We are, we enter in by faith, we have acceptance we are brought into the family we're brought into the house we have peace chapter 5 goes on to tell us that just as all of humanity was plunged into ruin by adam's sin so all who will believe in christ are brought in and restored through him they're representative heads of the whole race This is why a justified person can simultaneously be righteous and a sinner. Because legally, in justification, we're saying legally, but toward the courtroom of God, you could, God can pronounce over you, He is right with me based upon what Christ has accomplished. Now, some people heard that and said, Paul, if you tell people that we are saved by grace as a gift and that we are justified, that is, we are declared right with God, not based upon our own merit, but by the merit of another, 
Are they just going to run wild and live like the devil? Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, what happens here? What's Paul doing? Paul begins to talk about the idea of being united to Christ. Our union with Christ. What does it mean to be in, in, in this inseparable union with Christ? Well, what does that look like and what is that all about? What he's saying is, is that our relationship to Christ comes not only with a legal declaration that you're right with Him, but also a transforming work. Some people would argue chapter 6 through 8 are about our sanctification, about us being made new and transformed. Or you could say some of the benefits that come with our justification. Or I would say, overarchingly, when you're united to Jesus, not only are you, and this is how people would describe it, free from the penalty of sin, but you're also free from its power. And that's what you see unfolded before us in chapter 6 through 8. Look at 6, 11 through 14. So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So what he is saying is this union with Christ that you've entered into by faith, this union has other benefits, other things working. And so that the what we'll find out is the spirit is now working in us to make you more like him. He is conforming you to the image of his son. Now, when you get to chapter seven, Paul says, listen, I still do things that I don't want to do. I still sin. I'm still tormented by my sin. I still struggle with my sin more than you can ever imagine. I can't even seem to ever get my head around the fact that I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I'm warring every day. And sometimes I use the members of my body wrongly. And it just breaks my heart. Romans 7, 24 and 25, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's go back. You ready? We started out, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Right? We laid out the fact that humanity is not righteous. And then we said, once you realize that we have no leg to stand on and we are condemned before God, both religious people and irreligious, we get to this place where we say, okay, I have no hope. How are we going to be saved? And God says, I provided a righteousness outside of you. I provided good standing outside of you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you receive it as a gift by faith. He says, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be. And he says in chapter 5, Therefore, we 
uh, we have been justified by faith and have peace with God. Then we have to deal with the issue of like, well, what does that mean for our daily living? Some of the struggles that come at me. And we get to this place in chapter 6 through 8 where we recognize that although we have been freed from sin's power, we're still fighting that battle. And yet, we know that God will be with us to the end. Now, in Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, there's this great hope-filled verse, and it says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This great, sure foundation that we will be kept to the end even though we battle greatly with sin. When you get to chapter 9, Paul talks about the doctrine of election. He demonstrates that God's grace is God's choice. You hear that? That God's grace, the way He gives that out, the way He dispenses His grace is His choice. He saves whom He wills. So you say that it's very strong on divine sovereignty. God reigning over His salvation that He has brought into the world. In chapter 10, He emphasizes human responsibility. And He says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in chapter 11, He shows us how God's plan to save Jews and Gentiles work together to accomplish the building of His church. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So Paul has addressed God's choice in eternity past, His calling, justification, and sanctification in the present, and we see ultimately He will bring us into the future. He gives us this whole package deal. And, and I think it's important because He builds a theology, like I said before, from you and me, we can call each other. We can send each other a text. We can do a video. We can FaceTime. Whatever you want to say. We don't really feel separated from one another. And so sometimes our interactions honestly are a little poor. But if you were left from someone and not able to speak to them for a long time and you had to sit down and in a, a somewhat brief level write out to them what you believed about the faith, then that's kind of you're getting closer to what Paul does here. Of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the proper response to all this stuff? Like, You get through this and you say, oh, theology, theology, more theology. Ah, right? That's boring. Not really. <laughs> but, but once you study it and you get it and you understand it, you could say, what's the proper response? Uh, if I said to you, I'm going to give you a gift and it is the greatest gift you have ever received or ever could receive. It's the gift you didn't even know you needed. Well, and, and I give it to you. And, and it, it will save you throughout. I mean, it, it secures your eternity. What would be the proper response? Yawning. That would it be? Huh, huh. No, that's not the proper response. And notice how Paul responds. Look at Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six. 
Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now what is that all about? That's what you call a doxology. Proper theology results in proper doxology. That is, your knowledge of God, your understanding of God and His working and His gospel and His salvation produces in you a heart of praise. The higher your view of God, the greater like praise you will have. That's kind of the idea. The greater your understanding of Him, the more your life reflects itself in in a heart of praise. So one thing we see here is what? God gets all the glory for His gospel. It is God's gospel. We do not get credit. He doesn't say, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of Jared. How great! How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Praise Jared. Worship Him. Follow Him. No. Nobody's saying that. Nobody should be saying that. Christianity is not to leave you praising yourself, but praising the One who has saved you. It's God who gets all the glory. It's God who's magnified and honored. It is God that we are uh, in awe of. It is God that makes us humbled and and, and looking forward uh, to Him as the gracious giver of life. It is God that our hearts soar about and, uh, and, and are overwhelmed by. So what is the proper response to one who has been Chosen, called, justified, and glorified. Paul says he worshiped. Now, I want you to go to chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but I want you to see this. Paul says, I know what you're going to ask next. Can you tell me what that looks like? I mean, what would that look like for someone to live a life of praise? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How should my worship look? He says it should look like this. You climb up on an altar as a living sacrifice. Some people say, I would love to worship by like running out in front of people that hated Christians and be shot. And, and, and that's part, martyrdom is not something you would make fun of. It is something that people have in church history, have lost their lives. But the reality is, not as many people are martyred. Most of them have a marathon to run. And they are living sacrifices who are daily, uh, weekly, yearly, offering themselves uh, in worship to the Lord. 
they really are saying, I'm, I'm learning to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how does that show up in space and time? By loving my neighbor as myself. So I want you to just scan with me in 12 through 16, and I want you to see the headings in each chapter. Paul's going to give you examples about what this looks like. He first talks about the church serving one another with their gifts. Some people say, I don't really like the church. Eh, you know, you know, let me tell you something. The church is God's means to accomplish His will on this earth. The church is gifted. The church is what Christ died for. The church. When Jesus said, I will build my church. It's very important. The church is at the center of God's plan for the ages. And the way he does that is through local churches. Paul writes here to a local church. And he says, listen, one way to offer yourself back to God. Sometimes people say to me, oh, I, I, I really, I worship God my own way. I worship God apart from the church. The reality is Paul's saying, listen, if you want to offer your life back to God, go employ your gifts in the church. And then he says, here are some marks of Christian behavior. And he lays those out. Then he says, when you deal with governing authorities, submit to them. And he lays that out. And he says, here's how you live out the spirit of the law in all of your life. And he sets that before us. Then he says, listen, as you serve the body, there's going to be mature and immature believers and your love for them should be shown day by day by day. And then another thing he does is says, listen, there's going to be Jew and Gentiles together here and that is going to be difficult, but you are to celebrate that diversity because that is what God is doing in this world. And lastly, he says, listen, in whatever way, even people you never met before, when they come into your life, bless them, greet them, love them. What kind of people? Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, all people, slave, free, greet them. The way that you live a life of worship in light of the great theological framework that I've just given you is to embody these Christian directives. And how long do you do that? As long as we both shall live. But I get tired. What will fuel your passion? What sets your heart ablaze? You run back to the theological framework. You stare at the cross. And you say, okay. I'm getting up again. I'm going to move forward. Following my Savior. Day after day after day. Is it free? Is it costly? There's a cost. But the cost is so small in comparison to the glory that will be revealed when we all experience redemption in its fullness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you alone are to get the glory. Lord, I think about one of your people that you raised up in a different time who wrote the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. We pray that you would give us such an enormous view of you that we would then walk forward by faith with joy and out of gratitude and serve. In Christ's name, amen.